Welcome to Bioethics On Air, a program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part two of my interview with Grace Marie Turner from the Galen Institute. In part one, Grace Marie explained the expanding role of government in healthcare, particularly in light of the Affordable Care Act, as well as proposals for a single-payer system or Medicare for All. In this interview, she addresses issues of cost, waste, and accessibility within the U.S. healthcare sector. She also discusses concrete proposals for reform offered by the Health Policy Consensus Group in its publication, Healthcare Choices 2020, A Vision for the Future. All right, Grace Marie, welcome back. Thank you for coming back for part two of our interview today. So in this half of the interview, uh, we're going to be discussing healthcare challenges and proposals for reform as stated in the document, Healthcare Choices 2020 from the Health Policy Consensus Group. And I think you mentioned that group uh, in our first part of the interview. But Grace Marie, what is the Health Policy Consensus Group? Who comprises it and what does it seek to do? When I first got involved in health policy during the Clinton years, I um, really was a, I've always been interested in health care, but health policy was sort of a new field. What are we going to do to change the laws that affect our health sector? And I read, started reading about what the Clintons were going to do, basically putting the federal government in control of our health sector and just my basic freedom instincts that this is not right. And yet, and there were a number of other think tanks, the the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, a number of others that were coming up with their own plan. I had worked in the United States Senate early in my career, and I was walking through the halls of the Senate Dirksen building one day, and three senators came up to me and said, you know, we can't just be against Clinton care. We have to be for something. Which one should we pick? And I thought, that is a prescription for disaster, because whichever one you pick, the other two are going to shoot at it and get in a circular firing squad because they want to win. I said, I have to get these people together. So several colleagues and I called a meeting um, and we got the key people from these organizations that have written their health policy proposals and together. And they said, well, yeah, we have different plans, but they're all based upon the same idea of consumer choice and competition and free markets and choices and private coverage, et cetera. And I said, but you don't ever talk about that. And they said, well, it's because we all know that we agree on those basic principles. And we talk about how our policies are different. I said, guess what? There are about 100 United States senators across the street who have no idea that's the case. And so we put together a statement called the uh, Vision for Consumer-Directed Health Reform, signed by uh, not only those organizations, but then dozens more. We wound up getting a little grant, and we held a conference. We ultimately wrote a book, Empowering Healthcare Consumers Through Tax Reform. And that really was sort of the foundational idea for for the Galen Institute to really bring people together to talk about 
what you agree on and the vision for reform rather than having one think tank or another think that it's going to be the winner. And that's gone on for 30 years. And I will tell you, it's just as much a challenge now as it was then. Uh, we probably shouldn't be laughing at that. but We should not. That's right. That's like, you ask me, what do every day, every day of the Galen Institute, there has been something about, let's see if we can work together on this rather than just argue. We have to argue, yes, because we're going to, you know, we got to get to the right idea. But let's not try to win at somebody else's expense. And I think, I think we have created a community, not just in Washington but really around the country of people who are health policy experts in the state think tanks. My list now for the consensus group started out, there were seven of us around that table. I now have about 275 people on my um, invitation list and thank heavens for Zoom and Teams so we can actually meet, you know, virtually still. So it's, uh, it's evolved over time and still very important, I think. Yeah. So the the document is Healthcare Choices 2020, and we're going to be talking about that. But I'm wondering, is there a 2022 version or maybe a 2024 version on the way? What's going well, on if, there? If you notice there, it's 2020. We thought that we were getting away with calling this a vision for the 20, like 2020 vision, but people think of it as a date. So we, just, we actually are in the process of updating it because some of the, this was written uh, actually in late 2020. And some of the policy proposals that we talk about in here have actually changed either because right. the law has changed or the need has changed. So we are in the process of having um, of having conversations about how we can amplify this and, and build on it. But we had um, about 90 groups sign on to this, what, 50-page document? Yeah, so that's like a that. pretty big deal to get that many people. Our little first statement was just mostly a, a pamphlet, but we have really evolved. This has 36 different recommendations of what Congress could do. And Congress, it's, it can either be a menu or it could be a plan. But as I said earlier, we don't want to re-engineer our healthcare system. We want to have create the opportunity for entrepreneurs and, and creative people and technology and, and new entrants into the health sector to come up with solutions that none of us are smart enough to think of. Just like, you know, we couldn't have, Washington couldn't have invented the iPhone, right? But we don't know what we don't have in our health sector as far as solutions because Washington tries to control too much of it. So really the basic fundamental idea is to, to, to loosen the reins, to have parameters around protections for consumers and protections for taxpayers, but also to do this in a way that revitalizes the private market for health set with for health insurance and health care. Yeah. Like to, before we go into some of the specific uh, recommendations that you guys have, I'd like to talk about some of the challenges. And some of these you mentioned in part one of our, our interview. So it might be a little bit of repetition there, but that's okay. Um, and I've read this document. As you said, it's 50 some odd pages. It's actually really, really interesting. There's a lot of really good stuff. I often wonder how many people actually read the whole thing. So you should, you're going to get a gold star, Joe. All right. Well, that'll be, that'll be my first gold star. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure not sure the case. Many more. 
But anyway, let's let's talk about okay. some of the challenges. And the first one is cost. And you mentioned this before. And I'd like to, in these next couple of questions, read some passages from the document because these are things that just struck me. So on page six, or at least I got through page six anyway, of the, uh, the Healthcare Choices 2020 document, it states, and this is a quote, the average price of a health insurance policy for a family receiving coverage through the workplace is now $20,576.50, while the worker contribution of this amount is technically only $6,015, the employer contribution of $14,561 is part of the worker's overall compensation package. Higher health costs mean American workers receive less take-home pay. And I think that's a really good point. The more expensive healthcare is for the employer, the less take-home pay an employee employee, um, brings home. So Grace Marie, we've talked about this a little bit. Why don't we get a little more detail here? Why is healthcare so expensive in the US? And what can we do to try to drive down the costs? Oh my goodness! There are many books could be written to answer right. that, but I think that that if you really get down to one core fundamental principle, and that's the third-party payment system, in the health sector, unlike automobiles, food, clothing, housing, right. somebody else is ultimately paying the bill. Right. And you're paying a premium, but somebody else is ultimately paying the bill. So the consumer is really disengaged from from sometimes even knowing what the full cost of a procedure is going to be and being able to help find the best value. And with the Affordable Care Act, the more an insurance company raises its premiums, the bigger the subsidy it gets from the government. So how on earth is that going to be anything that's going to lower costs? It's not. So it's it's really the, the opaqueness of the the whole the whole funding mechanism and we're talking about 4 trillion dollars a year that's spent on healthcare in the United States of America that is an enormous amount of money that for for basically no one to know how much is this going to cost i mean my physician friend in florida that i mentioned in our earlier segment that treated the patient with with lung complications knew that he would have been paid $750 for that procedure many physicians don't even know that. You know, can say, Doc, how much is this going to cost? They don't know. What they know is that, you know, Aetna pay, may pay them a certain amount, United another, Blue Cross another. They know what they're going to be paid, but but we've lost the, the ability to know how much does something cost? And there actually are, though, some surgical centers, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, for example, that tells you, you need a knee replacement surgery? This is the price. And, and, you know, you may or may not have health insurance, but it's going to be a lot less expensive than if you have all these middlemen and add-ons in the system that wind up inflating the cost, inflating premiums, inflating taxpayer spending dramatically. Yeah. Are health share systems an answer to this? They absolutely are. And they, and they have a, a they have an exclusive a part of the Affordable Care Act that allows people to pool together the money that they're 
that they're spending on health care to basically help each other with their health expenses. I will tell you that the Medicare for all proponents do not like this. They do not like a faith-based or most of them faith-based organization sharing out of a sense of community the health costs um, for for major medical bills. But yes, but but you um, you know we were talking earlier about the the coverage, the cost of coverage, and it's only gone up since since COVID and since the um, Healthcare Choices Plan was written in 2021. The average cost of employer contribution to health insurance is now more than $22,000. That's up 4% over the year before. And as I said, it's a 47% increase over the year that the Affordable Care Act passed. So if you're looking for results, we now have more than 10 years worth of experience and it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Yeah. Uh, Well, if that didn't anger our listeners, uh, maybe the next thing will when we talk about waste. Mm -hmm. So in your March 29th testimony that you mentioned in the previous uh, interview, your March 29th testimony in front of the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Oversight and Reform, you spoke about one example of waste stating this, and this is a quote. So, quote, a recent federal audit examined 2,301 files of people enrolled under Obamacare's expansion, and eligibility review errors occurred in 29% of them. So, in other words, what you're saying here is the the audit found eligibility errors for nearly one third of Medicaid enrollees. What does this cost taxpayers? The federal government's improper Medicaid payments now exceed one hundred billion dollars a year. This means that, excuse me, this means that more than one in four dollars flowing out of Medicaid, our nation's third largest government program, do not meet program rules, unquote. That was stunning when I read that in your testimony. Um, Wow. Grace Marie, why is waste so rampant in the Medicaid system and what can we do about it? Because in particular with Medicaid, nobody's in charge. Really? With Medicaid, the federal government pays a portion of the the costs, the costs of how much a state is spending on Medicaid. And the poorer the state, I'm originally from the Southwest. I was uh, born and raised in New Mexico. Federal government pays at least 80% of all of the costs of Medicaid in the state. The state pays 20%. When the Affordable Care Act was passed, the federal government said, well, we'll pay 100% of the cost of expanding Medicaid to able-bodied working adults. So what did states do? They started to enroll even more people who were often dropping their employer coverage to get on free Medicaid and doing a worse job of taking care of the vulnerable poor people who have nowhere else to go 
for for their coverage. So you see that that the more a state spends, the more money it gets from the federal government for this program. It's called an entitlement. It's an entitlement to this benefit, to all the things that are covered, whether or not you can find a physician to see you is another question. You may wind up having to go to a hospital emergency room to get even routine care if you can't find a physician to see you. But nobody is in charge of really running the store. My colleague, Brian Blaze, who was President Trump's top health policy advisor in the White House for several years and senior fellow at the Galen Institute, has done a wonderful job in really tracking Medicaid spending and bringing this to the attention of government. And when I was testifying about this issue that you just described before the House Committee on Government Oversight and Reform, which you would think would be really interested in this. You would think. Nobody cares. No questions about it. So that it's we, we until we have a system in which somebody cares. Why is that? Why does nobody care? Well, consumers care. You and well, I care. Uh, well, patients care. Employers right. care. But but we're we we don't have the levers of power because government is telling us what we must purchase, what it must cover, who is able to provide it, and we have very few options to be able to find a better deal. Health sharing ministries are one. Short-term limited duration plans are another, allowing companies to join together for association and through association health plans. There are ways that that could be done, but government blocks them. What's what's the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Service? What's their role? Are they they supposed to be any kind of an oversight or where are they in this? Much bigger than the Pentagon. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service run the two major programs, the Medicare program and the Medicaid program. And um, a woman named Seema Verma ran the centers, we call CMS, missing one of the M's, but that's government work, right? I've never understood that, but it's government. (laughs) It's government work. Um, And she was really creative in trying to figure out how to give states waivers. One of the things, one of the good things in the Affordable Care Act was Section 1332, which allowed states to get a waiver and say, okay, you're telling us that we must cover all these people, we have to follow all these rules, this is how much we have to spend, et cetera, et cetera. We think we have a better idea about how we can cover more people for less money, but we need a waiver, sort of mother may I from government to get it. Well, SEMA was very happy to do that, and states that did that were able to do a better job of taking care of their most vulnerable citizens. They reduced premiums in some cases by 40%. And when you do that, you get more people involved in private coverage. But you had to get a mother may I waiver in order to be able to do that with this Affordable Care Act money. Georgia has a has a waiver that is pending right now. The Biden administration is doing everything it can to stop it, but it it would really be a creative way of showing, let's let the states have a lot more authority in figuring out how they can better utilize the resources they have, physicians, hospitals, volunteers, clinics, et cetera. 
and do a better job of taking care of the people in these target populations. Yeah. This may be a bit of an unfair question, but do you know, or, or how is the level of waste that we see in Medicaid comparable to the level of waste in other government administrative health programs? Is it, do you have any indication of that? Uh, it's, it's really hard to know that, and it's, that's not my area of specialty. I would invite you to have Brian Blaze on to, on a future podcast to, to talk about this. He actually did, did his PhD dissertation on, on, on these issues, and so I sort of delegate to him. But, but, but I just intuitively would believe that Medicaid is the worst because it's it's no one's in charge. It's federal state program in which everybody, you know, the, the federal government is just sending money to the state and the more the state spends and, and not, as you said, in, in the eligibility, they were not even allowed to check for eligibility according to the, uh, during the COVID times because they were so worried somebody might be thrown off the program. But but they might have had other options for coverage that would be better than Medicaid. So yeah, you've said a couple of times, both in the previous uh, interview and in this one here, that you you certainly support the private sector, and we're going to talk probably talk more about that as well too. But how does does well? I guess just throw this out: Does the private sector do a better job of controlling waste? Why or why not? As long as as prices are transparent, it's not doing a better job in the ACA. You know, you've got private health plans that get more money when they raise their prices. When they raise their prices, yeah. Right. So unless unless there's transparency for the consumer, we do actually have a program in that is run by the federal government that works, and that's the Medicare Prescription Drug Benefit that was written and conceived by a number of people, but the person who pushed it through was a man named Doug Badger, who also is a senior fellow at the Galen Institute, who designed a program that actually allowed private drug plans to compete and allowed consumers to see what what medications they were offering and the price they would pay for their part of the premium. The premiums are low. That passed in 2006, 2003, and went into effect in 2006. The premiums are lower now than they were expected to be the year the program started. And it's because you've got consumer choice, genuine competition, with the government basically saying, this is the these are the 150 categories of drugs you must cover seniors need to have at least two choices in every category go for it and then they that's why you hear late in the fall all the advertising right. sign up for our plan sign up for our yep. plan everybody's yep. trying to do a better job than the next guy of getting as many enrollees as possible it can even work in a government program amazing Amazing. All right. So we've talked about cost, talked about waste. Let's talk a little bit about choices in healthcare. So in the um, Healthcare Choices 2020 um, publication on pages eight and nine, you state the following, or or the document states the following, quote, in the healthcare sector, government officials, not patients, too often determine what services can or must be covered, how much will be paid, and who is eligible to both deliver and receive these services. 
Patients are at the bottom of the healthcare totem pole. You used that language in the previous interview. The more government gets involved, the more those offering services throughout the health sector are forced to respond to legislative and regulatory demands of government rather than to the needs and preferences of patients. The growing presence of government in healthcare is not the solution to our problems. It is the problem, unquote. Little uh, reference to Ronald Reagan there. I don't know if it was uh, intended or not, but uh, but uh, Grace Marie, can you give us a an example or maybe some examples of how healthcare providers are forced to respond to legislative and regulatory demands at the expense of their patients? Let's look at renal dialysis for as, as an example, okay. which is basically covered uh, by government. There has been virtually no innovation in renal dialysis in decades. It's because the government pays for specific procedures in specific settings for specific patients, and people have to go to that really brutal and life-disrupting dialysis treatment several times a week. If the private sector were in charge of that, and, and you're starting to see some some innovations, but if when government pays for something, it does so in a specific way, and right. you do not get paid. If you say, well, I can do that in a better way, well, fine, thanks, but we're not going to pay it. So we've got to we've got to have innovation in our health sector if we are going to do a better job of taking care of patients, allowing physicians to innovate. And allowing technology, people say, oh, technology is the problem and technology is so expensive. Well, that's not what's happened in the, in the tech sector. It, the more you, the, the more you um, innovate, the better it gets. And, and for the value perspective, the cheaper it gets. Right. That doesn't happen in the health sector because people are trying to follow government's rules rather than to figure out how can we do a better job of taking care of the patient's more efficiency, just like with Medicare Part D. How can we have competition, consumer choice, transparency to keep prices low? We can do this. We know we can do this, but we do it in pockets rather than throughout all health health sector. All right. So you gave the example of of renal dialysis. Taking a slightly different way, how do we give or how do we assure people the ability to choose the healthcare providers? that they want to see. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, that's really what's happened. Unfortunately, with the Affordable Care Act, premiums have increased. Deductibles have just skyrocketed. Deductibles can be six or $7,000 a year. I mean, that to many people, that is, means that they basically are not, are not even insured. Um, and they often have very narrow networks of I hate the word providers, physicians, and hospitals. Yeah. In Texas, for example, if you have cancer and you're on an Affordable Care Act plan, you're not able to go to any of the major MD Anderson, other cancer centers in Texas that are world-renowned. So you get you get much more expensive, worse care with fewer choices. And that's why and you mentioned this in our in our last session, that's why when President Obama promised, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your health plan, you can keep your health plan. And political fact checker called it the lie of the year. And they had to know that that the plans were going to 
narrow their networks and their panels of doctors and hospitals. And the doctors and the, that you may have gone to for your whole life may not be on it. And if you're on that plan, you have to go see who they say, they say you must yeah. see, not who you choose. Yeah. Uh, kind of related to that, how do we, is, is it possible to put healthcare decisions back in the hands of patients? And their healthcare professionals. Oh, you know, we get that all the time too. About oh, you know, it's way too complicated. What if somebody is wheeled into an operating room and after a car accident, and the doctor's looking over him and saying, "Oh, I see you have a health savings account. I'd really like to do an MRI, but can you only afford an X-ray?" That's not where the decisions get made. The decisions get made around kitchen table. When tables, when people decide what kind of insurance coverage do I want so the doctors and nurses can make those decisions for me to get the best care if I do wind up with some medical emergency. So, yes, they can make decisions. They need information. They need to know costs. They need to, to know the panel of doctors and networks. They need to know the list of medications in their health plan. And they... Walmart, before Obamacare, actually had a very sophisticated consumer uh, computer program that they had developed just to help their employees make decisions very specifically about the kind of coverage they wanted based upon their preferences. We could do that. All that was obliterated by Obamacare. Yeah. All right, so let's get into some practical stuff. So this is maybe I don't know the, the maybe the the modified lightning round here. So uh, healthcare choices twenty twenty lists ten benefits that would be realized if the health healthcare policy consensus group's proposals were to be enacted. So Grace Marie, I'm going to identify the benefit, and I was wondering if you can briefly explain what it means and what concretely needs to be done to achieve it. And I think we've kind of talked about some of these already. Yeah, yeah. So first. Uh, empower people to keep their health coverage and doctors when they change or lose their job. Give people the opportunity to um, basically take the value of the benefit, the that $22,000 that their employer right. may be spending on their health coverage. If you can find a better deal someplace else, maybe combining the mother, the money with your spouse's coverage, you could probably get a better policy. That's now, that's something that people need to be able to do. And you need to have a thriving market so they have those choices. Ability to do that. Number two, save people money on healthcare and drugs by making the prices of healthcare transparent. We talked about that uh, yeah, in the previous. Important for people to know. How, how much does that cost? And gee, maybe I could get a better deal. One thing that some states are doing is allowing people, for example, to um, to take their, their prescription their prescription that they get from the doctor and instead of turning it over to the pharmacy that they're used to going to where it's locked in being able to shop around and see right. if they can get a better deal on the, just on their prescription drugs yeah what about government doing that i know there's quite there's discussion about you know allowing the med, whoever's in charge of medicare or medicaid to be able to negotiate drug prices is that part of that too it's a terrible idea. They're, the government really? does not negotiate. It sets drug prices. That is that is a prescription for price controls. And the kind of innovation we saw during COVID would absolutely have been crushed if we have the government deciding 
how much drugs are going to, how much is going to be paid for drugs. But that could be a whole other session about what, <laughs> what the European, what European countries have done, for example, to their research-based pharmaceutical industries by telling the companies, oh, well, we'll pay this much for the drug, but basically we're not going to pay you for the R&D costs. So they have no money to continue their research. All right. Number three, eliminate the risk of surprise medical bills through transparency and truth in advertising. That's actually one of the um, one of the provisions that we need to update because at the end of the last Congress, at the behest of um, Senator Alexander of Tennessee, they did pass a surprise medical bill uh, legislation and a surprise medical bill act, <laughs> but it um, it's not going the way they thought it would be. So there are going to be some changes to that, but you know, people shouldn't, um, shouldn't go to a hospital that's in their network and then suddenly find, Oh, well, the anesthesiologist was not part of your network. Right. And so here's yeah. a bill for $10,000 right. really trying to avoid that. Yeah. And I've, I've been in that situation. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah. Uh, number four, benefit people financially when they choose lower cost, high quality care. California has, um, amazingly, has actually been innovating with something called reference pricing. And that says that, let's say you need, you have a, an elective surgery, you need a knee, knee replacement. They say, we will pay $30,000 for this procedure. If you can find somebody that'll do it for 28, you can have the 2000. If you want to go to the best knee surgeon in the country, who I think is in Vail, Colorado, <laughs> surprise, surprise, blowing, blowing out their knees, even though he costs $50,000, you can pay the extra, get the very top, but you're going to pay that extra 20. So it's just part of the price transparency. Well, we want to make sure you get the care you need, but you're going to have some choices. All right. Number five, give people better options, lower premiums, and better access to care if they get sick, have a pre-existing condition, and need financial help. And that's really the, the core of our healthcare choices plan. And it's actually been modeled by the former director of the Congressional Budget Office as saving money and premiums, increasing the choices of insurance coverage that would be available, and putting more money into the pot so that people who have rare conditions and chronic conditions can get better care. Right. Number six, and I think you mentioned this already, and you were talking about um, people in Texas not being able to access, uh, like MD Anderson. Yeah. Uh, give people access to specialized plans and care if they have a chronic illness. Well, and I think that's part of getting away from the trap of a government program or, or a program that somebody else is deciding for you rather than giving you the choices of what plans you want and, and what how you want to arrange your health coverage and care. Yeah. Number seven, give people more options to get insurance and care tailored to their needs and those of their family. And the federal government is completely out of its element in trying to do this. The states for decades have been running their health insurance markets and they negotiate with plans. You know, here are the parameters. You, have, you can't offer a health insurance plan that says your insurance covers a two week uh, trip to Tahiti every year and that's it. 
that's not insurance. So they have to define what insurance is, but then allow plans to compete just like they do in the Medicare prescription drug benefit to provide a variety of offerings at a variety of prices transparently though so people can see what they're buying that has to happen at the state level it just cannot happen at the federal government level because they federal government is a dictator the states are more likely not all of them but more likely to really try to energize choices right number eight make it easier for people to manage their own health care dollars right and that gets back to the transparency issue you know how much does it cost and what am i getting for it that people can shop for value if they have the information to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Number nine, make telehealth Ah. permanent so people can talk virtually with medical providers, including by phone, email, video conference, and other innovative delivery arrangements. Yeah, that's really been um, a transformative change during COVID, hasn't it? When people are afraid to go to their doctor's offices. and, And many people in Congress absolutely want to make telehealth permanent, but they're, you know, they don't trust doctors and how much are we going to pay? And doctors say, well, I should be paid the same for a telehealth visit as I am for regular visits. So it's not without its controversy, but I do think that this virtual, that virtual visits is something that will be part of our future. I would very much prefer for the private sector to figure out the innovations rather than government trying to pass a law that says, okay, this is how telehealth is going to work because then it won't change. Right. Yeah. And just with that, a a shout out to our our friends at My Catholic Doctor um, Telehealth uh, Organization. They do a great job. I refer to people to them all the time. Lastly, uh, number 10, remove barriers to innovation and competition. And there, I mean, this is really the, probably the, the, um, the culmination of the whole podcast of all of the things that are in the way, payment policy, rules, regulations, dictates, rather than trusting the market, trusting people to make their decisions and having a health sector that allows doctors to, I mean, they, they sacrifice so much in order to become physicians. And it breaks my heart that they have to follow the dictates of some, you know, person who may not even have a high, uh, have a college degree working somewhere in Nebraska, no offense to Nebraska, that, that doesn't understand of this, a single dot of what the physician knows about the best way to treat that patient. So we've got to get back to a system where doctors are in charge of the decisions and respected and not under the thumb of government. And if we don't do that, we are going to lose and already are losing some of the best medical professionals in the world, retiring 10 years before they might otherwise, 20 years before they might otherwise, they're going into some other profession. What a tragic loss. Yeah. Just in light of that, my my wife and I, or my family and I, we used to live in Cincinnati and my former primary care physician, um, she would, you know, would go in for my, my, you know, wellness check and everything, and then would talk for 20 minutes. And one day I asked her, I won't say her name, but uh, we'll call her Jane. Her name is not Jane. But I said, Jane, and she was saying a lot of the things that you're saying. And I said, Jane, if you had this all to do again, would you become a doctor? And she said, no, I wouldn't. And that's really kind of sad. And most physicians are not encouraging their children 
to go yeah. to medical school and go through this. Yeah. It's really tragic. It is tragic. All right, Grace, I'm going to ask you to put on your, uh, or look into your crystal ball here. So there is a fairly strong sentiment that Joe Biden and the congressional Democrats are not going to fare too well in the 2022 midterms. Assuming this happens uh, and Republicans gain majorities in both the U.S. House and the Senate, what can or will they do about health care? Do you think they'll focus on you know the recommendations that you stated here, or do you think they'll go another route? Republicans, unfortunately, sort of stuck their heads in the sand after that John McCain moment in 2017, really afraid to go back into the health care arena. That, that really has changed. Leader McCarthy in the House has set up a procedure of the, health, the Healthy Future Task Force. It's got five subcommittees, and they are putting together an agenda a health policy agenda, working a lot from the healthcare choices plan that we've offered, talking with a number of other think tanks, we've testified before them, uh, to try to put together an agenda that, again, is sort of this bottom-up reform. It's not going to be, okay, now we have the plan to reform the whole U.S. healthcare system. It's not a system, as you said earlier. It's not right to, to, to reinforce what you said earlier. We don't have a system. We have a health sector. But we want to empower our innovation. And that's really what they're doing as well. And also one of the things that's happened during COVID is that people realize how important it is to be healthy. And so part of it is how can we help you? What policy changes can we make to encourage you to live a healthier lifestyle? Encourage, not force. And so I think you're going to start to see some of these ideas are already starting to come out uh, for the Healthy Future Task Force and some of the same uh, elements on on the Senate side. But I think you're going to start to see some pretty interesting new ideas and we're helping them develop them. But I want them to take ownership of of their ideas. So things are happening. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing to hear. Um, We we are the National Catholic Bioethics Center. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you some Mm -hmm. questions from the Catholic perspective. So Grace Marie, what role does the Catholic Church and and Catholic teaching play in ongoing efforts at healthcare reform? One of the tragedies I felt of the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010 was that Sister Carol Keenan threw in with with Obamacare, and it really was crucial having her support as then, actually, she had most recently had been the head of Providence Hospital that's now gone under. And, And I think that Catholic leadership is crucially important. We, uh, I've, I've helped to advise the Catholic Medical Association in putting together a, li- a list of 12 principles, primarily for bishops, but really for any people of faith to, uh, to use in evaluating any healthcare reform princi- uh, policies that may be offered. I think had Sister Carol Keenan looked at this list recognizing the dignity of the human person, the protection of the right to life, subsidiarity, the centrality of the doctor-patient relationship, putting the protection of the poor and vulnerable at the center, the central role for charity, patient-consumer freedom, transparency trust, on and on. Had she had these, just two pages, but I think it really embodies, this is the filter 
that any legislation, it, it just must pass this test if it's going to be something that's going to work with with the larger teachings of the Catholic Church. I will send these to you, Joe, so that I'll send you a link on the on the Catholic Medical Association website. But I think it's if if people and bishops take these to heart and and help their their priests and their flocks to understand this, I think we will get better health policy from it. So yes, we have a huge role in this. Yeah. And I'll link that to the show notes. And also just for our, our listener, Sister Carol, uh, at the time when Obamacare was passed, she was the the chief executive officer of the Catholic Health, Health Association. Association. That's right. Yep. And so she wanna... had been Providence Hospital before yep. that. That's correct. Yep. So that's I just right. wanted to make sure everybody was uh, was clear on that. Well, and that's why she carried so much, her, her, her uh, endorsement carried so much weight. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. So, uh, Grace Marie, you were present at the launch event for the Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance uh, in January of 2022. We actually had a bioethics on our podcast on this. What role do you see this alliance playing in efforts to positively reform our healthcare system? Oh, Sorry, I said healthcare system again. Sorry, healthcare <laughs> sector. Health sector, good. <laughs> well, I, I think what Steve White, um, former president of the Catholic Medical Association and, and many years after that, head of their health subcommittee, felt like a voice in the wilderness. You know, we're, who we need to have more allies. And so the, the Catholic Benefits Association, Christ Medicus, the, a number of other allied Catholic centered, centered organizations. Like the NCBC, and, we were there and too. And the NCBC, of course, <laughs> coming together to really amplify the voices and, and to have these conversations. It's sort of like a consensus group, right? Yeah. That we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a lot of different organizations that are aligned doing some of their own things, but if they were, if, if another affordable Medicare for all bill were to come out, then if this alliance and all of the different members of the alliance were to make a statement, that would carry a lot of weight with Congress. And I think it would be heard very clearly. So it's, it's, it's an amplification of the voices of those who have specific expertise and for, and specific roles in the in the healthcare sector right now. Very well stated, Grace Marie. What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? They can find out a lot more about what we do at Galen.org, G-A-L-E-N.org, named after the second century Greek physician, and um, really follow us. I do a newsletter um, every week. People can keep up with what's happening in the health sector. But I think most importantly is to don't think of health care as the other side's issue. This is really our issue because it's an issue of human dignity. It's a issue, an issue of freedom. It's, a, it's an issue of the, the values that we cherish and hold dear about really what makes um, a civil society work, and that we must not cede this territory to the other side. We have to continue to educate people about what are the right health policies to take care of the poor and to make sure that everybody is able to get the, the care and coverage that they need. Very, very well stated. Grace Marie Turner, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air. Joe, it's been such a pleasure. Hope that you'll have me back. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. 
For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.